Good morning, Crossroads. How are we doing? How many of you can say it is well with our soul? We want to welcome those of you from our campuses and those of you online. We're so thrilled to have you as well. Thankful for technology that can keep us connected. I did want to mention you're going to be hearing about in the next coming weeks an opportunity to sign up to be a part of our 24 hours of reading through the scripture and prayer. Uh, this is an event that we believe is important as we enter into this voting cycle. We know votes have already uh, started. We believe that everybody should vote. We believe it's a valuable part of being a free society is that we get to have a vote. And so we want to encourage you to vote. I know we are one of the polling places this year. And part of that is because we believe it's important that people get the opportunity to vote in and around the community and uh, obviously on the national scale. And but, but, but let's just be honest, whenever we talk about voting, it also can bring about a lot of division. And so we believe that it was a really valuable time for us to say, you know what, as a church, we want to spend some time on our knees and focus on the Scripture. Why? Because we are kingdom people. Whoever's elected still has to reign under the authority of the King of kings and Lord of lords. That the Scripture says that it is Jesus, it is God. Yeah, you can clap for that. You can, you can clap for that. It is God who turns the hearts of kings and princes. Throughout generations, God has used pagan and heathen and wicked kings, and God has used great, righteous, and godly kings. Throughout history, God has worked through people that you would not suspect. So whoever is elected, whatever side you may vote for, what we know is that God is still on the throne, and he will accomplish his purposes. And so uh, we as a church just want to focus on that. And so beginning November 1st, right before the vote on November 3rd, on November 1st at 2 p.m., right after our this service, our, our 11 o'clock service, uh, we're going to be clearing out, and then we're going to be making a time where we're going to be reading through the Psalms and the entire New Testament over 24 hours. And then alongside of that, we are going to ask you if you would be a part of coming in. We're going to have some prayer stations where people can pray specifically for our nation during this time. We are a divided nation. This is an opportunity to come together and say, we're going to pray. We're going to spend our time on our knees, and then we'll go on November 3rd and vote. And so we want to ask you to join us at our campuses. They were able to sign up today. We want to give them the first opportunity before we bring that here. Next week, you're going to be able to sign up. We're asking for 20-minute increments. And so you can read for 20 minutes. We're going to simulcast that so that everybody can be a part of that. You can even watch from home throughout the day. Uh, and then we're going to ask you, would you sign up for 20 minutes of prayer? You, you don't have to pray publicly, but would you just even come here to Park Avenue? It's all going to be here and just spend some time in prayer for our country as a church body. And so we're going to have 20 minute increments for prayer and reading. You can sign up for either one of those. You can sign up for both of those. We need some Navy SEAL Christians who would be willing to sign up at 2.30 a.m. At 3 a.m., we're going to be reading the Bible and praying all night, all day from 2 p.m. on Sunday to 2 p.m. on Monday, and then they're going to be setting up because we're a polling place, and so uh, we hope that you'll come and be a part of that. You will be able to sign up next week, and so we hope you will. We want to fill 24 hours as a church body just saying, God, we're here to hear from you. Uh, we know that you are God. We're praying for our nation uh, that you would do a mighty work and that we could be a part of that as your people. And so we hope you'll join us. We'll keep you up to date about that in the weeks to come. If you would take your Bibles out with me and turn to Luke chapter 18, Luke chapter 18. And if you don't have a Bible, there is one in the seat back in front of you. You could turn with us to page 877, Luke chapter 18. 
page 877. If you're online, you can go to the app and you can follow along in the notes. Everything should be there for you to follow along with. Luke chapter 18, page 877. Last week, we kicked off a series that we've called Accidental Pharisee. Could it be that we have accidentally become a Pharisee? In the first century, the Pharisees were looked at as one of the greatest compliments of people. They were righteous people. They were guardians of the law. They were the watchdogs of God. They were the people that everybody else would want to emulate. They were the people worth following. But what we find in the Gospels is that, that these well-intentioned followers of God, these well-intentioned Jews, found themselves on the opposite end of Jesus. They, they go from being watchdogs of God's truth to being arch enemies of God. We talked about last week that you and I could slowly fade in the same category. Yes, we're not quite like the Pharisees in the sense of standing against the sacrifice of Christ, but all of a sudden we can find ourselves in places where we are acting like a Pharisee. And we said last week that one of the ways we do this is, and we made a statement that said, clean hands can lead to pointing fingers. Right, sometimes in life, the longer we've been a Christian, it's so much easier to stand back and get away from the mission. We can begin to bounce around, we can begin to complain about everything else, we can begin to kind of fade spiritually. Yes, we may have a vibrant Bible study and we may have vibrant prayer, but we're not really engaging the mission. As we saw last week, Jesus got his hands in the mess and mire of culture. Jesus got his hands messy in ministry, and ministry is messy, and it requires us to get our hands dirty. It requires us not just to step back and complain about it. It requires us to go out and live this thing out. And so we said sometimes clean hands can lead to pointing fingers. When our hands are not in the mess of the ministry of life, not in the mess of the mission of God, we begin to point fingers at everybody else, and we miss what God put us on earth to do, and that is to help him fulfill the mission to seek and save that which is lost. And so easy, easy for us to begin to fade, and without even knowing it, we can become an accidental Pharisee. Now, as we dive in today, I want to show you something I brought from home, uh, and it's going to be a little bit hard to see, but this is the growth stick that we had to measure how our boys were growing up. And you can see uh, I, we have four boys, and there's my son David and my son Caleb. And we use this to measure how tall. And if you, if you were able to look at this closely, you would see their names throughout this. And uh, for example, here is Caleb at one years old. And David was a little bit taller than him at one year old, our oldest son. Uh, but Caleb has passed them up. And you go up the chain and you see how they've grown all the way to up here in 2009. This was my oldest son, David, January 2009. So you can see this chart and it gives kind of a growth of how they grew up. Now, this is the truth of parents of a larger family. If you have like, like us four kids or even more, by the time you get to the third their name isn't on the stick anymore. Because <laughs> at that point, you're just like, I don't care. <laughs> They're going to be fine. We're just going to measure them anyway. And you'll find my son Jacob's name on here, and you'll find my son Isaac's name on here, scratched in, but their name is not on the stick. Um, they didn't make the stick. Uh, you know, at that point, you're just like, they're fine, right? They're going to be better. They'll be strong. 
Life isn't always fair, right? That's the way it works. Uh, but this thing kind of played a major part. Like every, every few weeks, every month, they would go up and say, did I grow? Right, when they were younger, did I grow? And they come up and they measure themselves. And then we say, no, you haven't grown yet. And then they would grow and we mark it. It was a memorable occasion. And then eventually they grew larger than this stick, larger than this little growth chart. And they came up to dad and I became the growth chart. It was dad, let's turn back to back. Let's see who's bigger. And we go back to back, and they weren't quite there, but they were catching up, and we make a big deal. Hey, you're getting closer. And then eventually, they just have that smidge of hair that stands up, and they get it. And then what happens, right? They turn around, they go, yeah, dad, I'm bigger than you now. And I always remind them, but I can still take you. Like, listen, I might be short, but I'm scrappy. I will take you out. You can't beat me. And I am still mentally advantage over them. I have a mental advantage over them. They still don't believe that I'm like, I, I'm, I'm from the hood, right? I'm some force. Like, I'm from the west side. Like, they're scared of me. And so they come up and still, even today, every once in a while, especially my youngest son, I go come up and go, hey, dad, come back to back. And he's like now two inches taller than I am. All my boys have passed me. And yet I'm still the measuring rod for them. And when they want to prove their value, right, when they want to prove who they are, they come up to dad and say, hey, dad, can we measure each other? Can I tell you, this little instrument is a, the way a lot, of us, a lot of us live life. I want you to think about this. We live it probably in a culture of comparison like no other. We have a generation of people that are constantly comparing each other to other people. We live in a culture of comparison. It is like any other generation before us. And one of the reasons why is because we have social media, right? We can scroll through social media and we can see the highlights of everybody's life. We live in a comparison game, a culture of comparison like no other. Just think about it. Let's face it. There's not a day that goes by that you're not tempted to glance left or to right to see how you measure up, how you measure up about Somebody who has a better job than you. To measure up with those kids and wonder, are their kids better than my kids? To, to measure up to whose recipe is better on Pinterest. Or whose sunset looks better on Instagram. We live in a constant state of companion. I mean, just, I want to, I ladies, I want to use you as an example for a moment, right? You, you go onto social media and what do you find? You're just chilling, you're just grabbing your phone, and now, next thing you know, you see that perfect little friend with their perfect little cute journal, with their fancy creative calligraphy pen, with hashtag goals as her hashtag, while she's drinking a perfect little green healthy smoothie with an open book by the pool. And you're like, that's what I got to compare it to. Right? We, we live in this comparison trap. We're trapped by comparison. Now, I want, I want you to think about this. Comparison in and of itself is not bad. Right? We compare for good things. For example, you never buy a house without comparing. Right? You compare to what you desire, what you want, but you're using comparison to figure out what house you want to buy. If you're going to buy a vehicle, you're going to have a comparison game you're going to have to play. For some of you, you would never buy a Chevy. For others of you, you will never buy a Ford because it means fix or repair daily. For others, you only buy GMC, right? There, there's a habit of buying, right? We compare. This is the way we buy products. We live in a state of comparison. This can overflow to things like lunch. After this, maybe you're going to go grab some lunch. You're going to compare restaurants. Which one are we going to go to? Which one made me sick last time? Which one has better food, right? You're going to compare where you're going to go to lunch. There's a good aspect of comparison. 
Here's the problem. At the core of comparison personally, at the core of this game of comparison that you and I walk through, is a desire to find value. This is where comparison becomes dangerous. That we are desperately looking for something to bring us value. Something that will bring us worth. And from a very early age, we find this intrinsically in us. This yearning for worth and value. It's why we send our kids to school and what's the first thing they taught? The first thing they're taught is that there's a system. A, B, C, D, and F. What do they have to do? They have to compare to the grades of other kids. We, we teach them in sports. So you got to throw it farther. you got to run faster. you got to go harder, right? If you're going to win in a game, you got to be better than the other team. We teach them at a very early age. It is intrinsic in our culture, in our climate, in our world to compare yourself to others to determine how worthy you are, to determine your value and your worth. Now, there are two reactions that we can have as humans, two reactions that we can have to this reality. For some of us, we are constantly fighting to find more worth. We are constantly comparing ourselves to find a place we can find more value. And so we're constantly looking for the next thing that makes us feel better, the next thing that's going to satisfy the yearning for worth. And so we're going to compare this, and we're going to compare that, we're going to compare this, and we're going to find whatever we're looking for. Eventually we will find what we're looking for. The second part of that is, for some of us, we get so tired of the fight for worth in comparison we just give up. And we say, I just don't care anymore. I don't care about the comparison game. I don't care about my worth. I don't care about my value. I'm just going to live my life, and I'm going to enjoy it the way it is. And for some of us, we give up, and we say it just doesn't matter. And both of these things are completely dangerous. The Bible actually talks about comparison. In fact, Jesus himself here gives an example of a comparative life. He gives an example of the way comparison works, and he uses a story of a Pharisee and a tax collector. Now, if you remember last week, we talked about how tax collectors were outcasts of the Jewish people. They were traitors. They were Jews who worked for the Romans and stole money from their own people in order to get their own gain. They were dishonest and shrewd people, and they were outcasts according to the Jewish society. And Jesus uses them as an example of comparison. Now, before we dive in, Jesus here is talking, and the Pharisees bring up a question about the future kingdom. And they say, when is the kingdom going to come? If you read Luke chapter 17 and 18, Jesus is answering their questions. Now, here's why I think this is important. We're not going to look at all of that, but I think it's important to note that Jesus is going to demonstrate kingdom living with multiple stories. We're going to look at one of those stories, but he's going to demonstrate what the kingdom looks like through these parables. So we're going to look at Luke chapter 18, and we're going to see one of the parables that Jesus describes, but this gives us insight into kingdom living. If you want to know what it looks like to live ready for the coming kingdom, here is what it should look like. Take a look with me, Luke chapter 18, and we'll begin in verse 9. It says, he also told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. Two men went up into the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed thus, God, I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. 
But the tax collector, standing far off, would not even lift his eyes to heaven. But he beat his chest saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. I want you to notice this little parable that Jesus gives. Now, parables were little stories that made truthful points. This could have been true. It may not have been true. But Jesus gives this parable to make a kingdom point. And I want you to see it's all about comparison. See, what we find here is the information is not incorrect. Right? What we read that the Pharisee says here is not incorrect. Is he better than the tax collector? Is he better than a murderer? Is he better than an adulterer or unjust or an extortioner? Absolutely. Is he better than most men? The answer would be yes. Everybody would say absolutely he is. He follows the law of God. He says, listen, I fast twice a week. Anybody here fasting twice a week? Don't raise your hand. Right? Think about it. This man is good. I mean, in comparison, he's got it figured out. I mean, he is giving, notice, I give tithes of all that I get. He's making a point to say, I go above and beyond the call of duty. I go above and beyond. The information here is true. This is how the Pharisees lived. The information about the tax collector is true. Like, this Pharisee is better. The, the issue of comparison is not information. The information could be true about our comparisons. The issue is what we do with the information. The issue is how we live based upon the information we know about our own lives. This is the issue. Now, I want you to notice the end of this parable. Jesus gives us a summary statement. This is the essence of why Jesus shared this. It says, I tell you, this man went down to his house justified. So the question is, why did the tax collector go to his house justified and the Pharisee didn't? Jesus says this, rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself. The word here is the word hupsao in Greek. It literally means to exalt or to set yourself higher than reality. It is to give yourself a position that may not actually be true, but is perceived to be true. This is the world of comparison. It is that we live in perceptions and not in realities. This is exactly the point that Jesus is making. And he says, this man, the tax collector, he goes down justified. Now what I love is Jesus here doesn't leave us empty-handed. Throughout the Bible, we see an answer to the comparison game. In fact, it's very interesting what we find. We find this idea of comparison comes back to what we measure in life. And let me, let me say it this way. What am I going to use as a reference point to measure my life? That's exactly the question. That is exactly where the Bible goes. What am I using or what am I going to use as the reference point to measure my life. See, comparison all comes back to what we're comparing to. All of us are going to compare to something, but the question is, what is our measuring reference point? What are we using? What, what rod? What, what, what instrument? What are we measuring up to? Who is it that we're looking at? And the Bible reveals there's actually two. There are only two things that all of us measure toward, or that we should measure toward. There are two things that all of us measure, one bad, one good. First of all, the idea of people. This is number one. People can serve as the focus of our comparison. 
people become the focus of comparison. Throughout the Bible, when it talks about comparison, it always comes back to people. That we compare ourselves to other people. One of the places that we can focus on in comparison is other people. And I want you to think about this for a moment. Think of every comparison on earth. The comparison of appearance. The comparison of possessions. The comparison of performance. The comparison of circumstances. You know what all of them have in common? Is the only way you compare those things is to compare them to people. Like no one compares circumstances unless you see somebody else's circumstances that are better. No one compares possessions unless you see someone else's possessions that are better, right? We compare. In all of these categories of comparison, it always comes back to the mirror of people. People is the focus. And I want to show you this. Because Jesus introduces this story with some key words that defines this exact reality of comparison. Take a look at what he says, verse 9. He says, he also told this parable of some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous. Now, I love this word, this, this Greek word, trusted themselves, is a word patho. And patho literally means to persuade with confidence. Literally, what's happening is, there is a character, of course, the Pharisee, who is persuading himself to have confidence that he is righteous. He is persuading himself of his worth. He is persuading himself of his value. Now, watch this. Notice the next word. One who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. The word contempt here is a unique word. It's the word exutheno or exutheneo, and it literally means to count as nothing. To count as nothing. So, what is comparison? Think about this. Think about the connection piece of those two phrases. First of all, comparison is trying to persuade myself with confidence, but it's also counting other people as nothing. Both are necessary in unhealthy comparison. So by definition, here's what comparison is. Comparison is determining who I am based upon who everyone else is. This is what comparison is. Comparison is determining who I am. I'm persuading myself of who I am based upon what everybody else says. I'm counting them as nothing. This is exactly what comparison by definition is. It is, I'm going to trust myself confidently, and I'm going to treat others as if they don't count. Now, you and I wouldn't define it this way. We're not quite as cruel, but that, in essence, is what comparison is. We make a claim of a category of winners and losers. This is how we live. We look at people and we make a category of winners and losers. Now, when I think about this, I think back years ago, one of, one of my best friends, uh, when I lived in Maryland, I served in the D.C. area. One of my best friends um, who is an athletic guy, in fact, he's a Division I men's volleyball coach, we enjoyed together going golfing. He played volleyball, men's volleyball at the University of Maryland. Now he coaches down in Charlotte, North Carolina. And uh, we love to play golf together. We were best friends. We love to play golf. And th- it would never fail. We got to play golf. And I love playing golf. And, and um, I, I would say, you know, I'm not great, but I'm not, I'm, I'm not bad. Like, I'm a decent golfer. And so whenever we would go out to play, we'd always have these competitions. And it never failed. Never failed. As good as I would play, he would always beat me by, like, one stroke. Every time. Like, I would go out and play the round of my life, and guess what happened? He would beat me by at least one stroke. I'd go out and just play horribly, and guess what he would do? He would play horribly and beat me by one stroke. 
In fact, I love to play golf even today. I, I play quite a bit with some of our staff. One of them is Pastor Doug Taylor. He's our Park Avenue campus pastor. Whenever we go play golf, Doug always loses by one stroke. But Doug is brilliant because he's doing it because he knows there's job security in that. <laughs> whenever, he, whenever, whenever, whenever he beats me, it, it, it happens sometimes, I look at him and say, Job, Doug, you better be careful, man. Don't let this happen again. And so we joke about it, but literally we'll play, and I will win by one stroke. It's just odd how this happens. But I had this friend, and he won by one stroke, and we were playing around together, and we were on the 16th hole. Now, that probably doesn't matter if you're not a golf fan, but there are 18 holes. So we're on hole 16. It's a par 3, and uh, I am up by 2. Now, I want you to think about this. I'm up by 2 with 3 holes to play. If I just finish out strong, I got him. If I just par every hole, it's going to take a lot to beat me. So I'm in control of the match, and finally I'm going to beat him. I feel it. Like, I feel confident. I've had a great round, and we're on this par 3. Now, this par 3, left of the hole, is out of bounds. There's houses that all line up, and right of the hole, you're free. And I, So I get up first. And I hit this beautiful shot, and it goes into the hole, and it lands about 15 feet from the hole. And again, I tell you, after I hit it, I was like, game over. <laughs> Put that club back in the bag as if I was a, a sword-carrying member of the Knights of the Round Table. He then had to get up and hit. Now, now remind you, I'm two up on him. I have, I'm over him by two strokes. I'm winning. I've got three holes to play. I just hit a beautiful shot. I'm set. And all of a sudden, he hits this shot, and as he hits it, it begins to go out of bounds. It's going left to the houses. And as this ball is traveling in the air, my heart goes, yes. He is going down. Like, everything in me wants to go, face. Face, I got you. Like, you're not winning. And as I began to think this, I watch as this ball plucked off a tree, hit another tree, flies onto the green four to five feet from the hole. Now, we had to be paired up with two other players. They weren't a part of our group, but we had to be paired up because it was pretty full that day. And uh, there is golf etiquette. The etiquette is considered a gentleman's game. So when someone hits a good shot or even a lucky shot, you're you're supposed to go, great shot. Or the golf applaud. Well done. Well done. After that shot bounced off the tree and landed on the green, my first instinct, it was like rage coming out of me, is I yelled to the top of my lungs, that stinks! <laughs> and these other guys look at me as if I should have my golf card pulled and never be allowed to play again. The competitive aspect came out of me, and it stunk. He made a birdie, ended up beating me. I did not win. I did not win. And I so appreciate the sympathy. Some of you are like, oh. <laughs> right? Don't we categorize with winners and losers? This is the point, right? We live in constant comparison, and we don't want to see someone else pass us. Now, there are two ways that we can live this out, right? There's one way of comparison where we look for other people to aspire to be, right? And so there are people that we should aspire to be. But here's the problem. Here's the danger. And here's why the Bible, when it talks about the category of comparison focused on people, says it doesn't work. The reason for this is because when we look for people that we aspire to be, what happens when that person fails? You and I have been there, right? If you've ever looked at somebody that you aspire to be and then they fail, what happens? It crushes you. It crushes you. 
And so we do well to guard against someone we aspire to be. By the way, also, when we look to people to aspire to be like people alone, what happens? You, you begin to compare your life to them, and you say things, right? I say lines like, well, if I only had that, if I only had, right, their kids, if I only had their family, if I only had their house or their job or their, right, we begin to say, if I only had them. When we look to somebody to aspire to be, there's danger lurking in the weight saying, no, 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 if you aspire to be somebody, you begin to measure yourself like them and everybody loses. It leaves you frustrated and exhausted because you're never measured up to the one you aspire to be. The other option is to view people lesser than yourself. The other option is that you and I can find anywhere somebody who's worse than us it's easy find somebody who's worse than us. this is exactly what the pharisee says notice he says i'm not like other men and notice he labels them extortioners unjust adulterers and even the tax collector he's not wrong notice he picks and chooses who he's comparing his life to you can always find somebody lesser than you to compare life to Always find somebody that's lesser than you, right? We do this all the time. A person's education, an economic status, a person's looks, their wardrobe, their social relationships, their per the, the job they might have, the fame they might hold, the prestige they might live. All of us can begin to compare. And slowly, like a Pharisee, it also leads into our spiritual lives. Well, uh, I mean, I've read through the Bible do you realize that only about 15 to 20% of Christians have ever read it entirely through the Bible? I meet people all the time that said, you know what, I don't know if I believe the Bible. And my number one question to somebody that says that is, have you ever read it front to cover? You know, every single time, every time I've asked that question, every single time, you know what they say to me? Well, actually, I haven't. So you're making a judgment call on a book you've never read? Like, right? People say, well, I don't believe in it. Well, have you read it? No, I have never read it. How can you not believe in it? This is the image, right? This is exactly what happens. We begin to compare ourselves. And we say, well, I read more of the Bible than most people according to stats. I pray like I'm better than somebody. There's people that are not praying. I mean, I'm, a, I'm, not, I'm not abusing anybody. I'm not a murderer, right? I'm pretty good. And we begin to compare our lives spiritually. Can I tell you one of the ways I've seen this comparison game play out in my life? I was just having a conversation with one of my sons about this. You ever been in that circumstance where you find yourself in an unwanted circumstance, a thing you'd never want it to happen, and the instinct is at that moment to get very spiritual? Crisis in my life, God, I'm going to listen to Christian music and I'm going to read the Bible. Crisis in my life, I'm going to go to church every week. What happens? What are we doing? We're actually playing a comparison game thinking that we, we gain favor when we somehow do these spiritual tasks in the midst of crisis. Like somehow God goes, oh, look, you guys are doing all the checklist, and now I answer. That's how we play. What is that? That at the heart of it is a comparison game. It is a game of comparison. We find ourselves do that. And all of us have done that before, right? We find ourselves in an unplanned moment, an unwanted moment, and we do spiritual things to hopefully appease God so he does good to us. By the way, this is against the gospel, as we're going to see in a moment. This is contrary to the very thing that we believe. It doesn't work. Comparison doesn't work for three reasons. Comparison to people doesn't work for three reasons. First of all, comparison will lead to pride. You read this text, and is there any question that this Pharisee is prideful? There's no question. I mean, look, he's, he's comparing himself to everybody else, and he's saying, look all that I have done. In fact, I, I would challenge you, if you'd like to underline, underline all the word eyes. God, I thank you that I am not like other men. 
extortion, adulterers, or even like this tax I fast twice a week, I give tithes. See, there's pride. Now, what's interesting about pride when it comes to comparison is that pride doesn't come because we're better than other people. Right? Pride doesn't come because someone's beautiful, because someone's rich, because someone has a good job. Pride doesn't come because of those things. Listen to this. Pride comes because we think we have those things better than somebody else. Pride doesn't come because we have those things. Pride comes because we think we're better or we're lesser than those. It's the land of Ur. I'm better. I'm smarter. I'm richer. I'm poorer. It, it comes in those words. I'm cleverer. I'm, I'm, I'm better at this. I'm more gifted. I'm, I'm taller. I'm happier. I'm hipper. I'm talented-er. Put an er behind any word, and what do you got? You got the land of er. It's comparison. And we, we flow this over to spiritual life. I, I, I'm a Bibler. I'm a prayer. I'm, a, I'm an obedient-er. We add these ideas. Here's the point. If everybody was equally the same, rich, whatever it is, poor, clever, good-looking, whatever, there would be no comparison. We wouldn't compare with anybody, but it's because we try to lean in. We try to go a little higher. We try to get superior or lesser than other people. And here's what happens. It will lead to self-deception because you're always going to look out for failure of people. Who's going to fail? Who's going to fail next? And then it makes us feel better. It fills our tank. Comparison will lead to pride. Secondly, comparison will kill our contentment. We have the idea that if we compare, somehow we will get more content. But actually, comparison leaves us with a, a compulsive urge of jealousy and shame. It is a bitter, insatiable cycle. When we are comparing, we actually continue to not be content. And so what do we do? We compare more to get more contentment, but we don't find it. And so we keep in the cycle comparison, discontentment, comparison, discontentment. We're on a quest for acceptance and joy, but we're paralyzed by pressure to look good and to do better than the people around us. We, we go after purpose and value and mission and need, but we're distracted by all the things we see, and that comparison leaves us deadly. It kills our contentment. And thirdly, comparison will steal our joy. Comparison actually doesn't lead us to a heart overflowing with joy. When you read this story, there's not joy in the Pharisee. His comparison is aggressive. His comparison is discouraging and despairing. It is frustration and struggling. It is even anger. Comparison actually steals the joy that we think we are going to find if we just gain this place. Now, when I read this, when you read this about the Pharisee, all of this information is true. He is better than the extortioner, unjust, the adulterer, even the tax collector. He's better. And, and if you read this, you start to think, wait, this, this guy's not sinning. And even though comparison can be a subtle sin, right? It's a subtle sin. It's a subtle sin like forgetting to floss. It's small. No one cares about it. And we can think that comparison is so small compared to bigger sins. But can I tell you, it is dangerous. Comparison is dangerous. It will lead to pride. It will kill contentment. It will destroy your joy when you live a life of comparison. So what do we do? How do we respond? I want you to see what Jesus describes here. Because he gives us another side of the story, and that is this. We can compare our focus to other people, 
Or we can see Christ who gives us a picture worthy of comparison. This is number two. Christ gives us a picture worthy of comparison. He is worthy of comparison. Now that might sound like an oxymoron. Why would God want us to compare to himself? Well, I want you to see here. This is powerful. Take a look at this tax collector. Verse 13. But the tax collector, standing far off, would not even lift his eyes up to heaven. But notice, but he beat his breast saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. Now, why would God want us to compare in this way? By the way, I want you to notice that he is not comparing himself to anyone else. He is not even looking to heaven. He is not looking at anybody else. He doesn't name anybody. He doesn't say murder or tax collector or anything else. Here is a tax collector. He was wicked. He was considered dishonest. He was considered a sinner. But what happens? He beats his chest and says, God, be merciful to me. Now, in there is the key. The key to the idea of comparison. You, know, I, you and I in our English can skip over this so easily. But this word mercy. There are many words for mercy in the Greek language. This word is only used twice in the entire New Testament. It's only used one time in the Gospels here because it's not the normal word for mercy. This word here, mercy, is the Greek word halaskomai. And what halaskomai literally means is propitious, satisfied, appease. It's, it's used in Hebrews, the only other place it's used, and it's that Jesus is the propitiation for our sins. Propitiation, propitious, literally means satisfied. Well, what is he crying out? He's beating his chest and he's saying, God, satisfy me. God, bring me worth. God, bring me value. God, I have nothing to offer you. I can't even look to heaven. I, I got nothing for you. In comparison to you, I bring nothing to the table. And so I'm asking you, would you appease? Would you satisfy? Would you bring worth? Would you bring value? See the difference? This man is not comparing to other people. He's comparing to God. And when he compares himself to God, what happens? He says, I'm just a sinner, God. I've got nothing to offer you. So I'm asking you to be my satisfaction. I'm asking you to fill the hole in me. I'm asking you to be my victory. Here's what we get out throughout the scripture. If you read the New Testament, the writers spend tons of time reminding us of this truth, reminding us of who we are in Christ. And there are two realities here that I believe this man understood. This is why Jesus could say in verse 14, this man went home justified. Why? Because first, to get rid of the comparison trap, as I compare my life to God, I begin to accept who we are in Christ. Accept who you are in Christ. My goodness, my righteousness, my worth has nothing to do with my behavior. It has nothing to do with my skill. It has nothing to do with what I gain. No, God scandalously applies righteousness to our sin-drenched souls out of his pure generosity. See, he initiates that. He does that. You and I, we're in bad shape. When we understand we're in bad shape, what happens? Self-reliance, self-comparison, Self-confidence can't be found at the foot of the cross. Why? Because when I compare to God, I'm in the same boat you are. You're in the same boat I am. All we can do is beat our chest and say, God, be our satisfaction. God, I got nothing. 
There's nothing valuable about me. There's nothing good about me. And in that, I begin to see who God is and what he's done in my life. By the way, this is exactly, this pattern is all through the Bible. Titus 3, 3 through 7. It says, for we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others. And by the way, hating one another. Is it, by the way, prejudice, a result of comparison? Prejudice itself is a result of comparison. He says, we hate one another, but when the goodness and loving kindness of God, our Savior, appeared, he saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration, renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ, our Savior, so that being justified by his grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of of eternal life. He says, listen, this is who you are. You're not who you were. There's no comparison. You can't compare it to anybody else while you're all in the same boat. But Jesus saved. And salvation, you recognize, you see who you are today. You see that you're accepted. And we have to accept who we are in Christ. And secondly, we recognize what we have in Christ. We recognize what we have in Christ. Listen, who does God compare you to? Does God compare you to Billy Graham? We've all lost. <laughs> does God compare, compare us to Charles Spurgeon? I'm out. No, God compares us to Christ. And in comparing us to Christ, we see we can't do it. And then what does he do? He reaches his hand down in grace and he raises us up and redefines us. See, we do well to recognize what we have. See, comparison isn't just unhealthy for Christians. Get this. Comparison isn't just unhealthy for Christians. It's downright antithetical to our faith. Why? Because our faith is a gospel of radical acceptance. It's a gospel that says, I'm not okay. I'm not beautiful. I'm not worthy. I'm not successful. I'm not perfect. I'm not better than anyone else. But in Christ, I'm accepted. In Christ, I'm cleansed. In Christ, I'm clothed. In Christ, I'm saved. In Christ, I'm changed. In Christ, I'm loved. In Christ, I've been adopted. In Christ, I have worth. I have value. In Christ, I have, I have satisfaction. In Christ, I don't need to compare to anybody else. Why? I have all that I need in Him. I don't need to look at other people's lives. I don't need to scroll through the social media prison and see what everybody else has and see that sunset and say, wow, I wish I had that sunset and then try to compete to make a better sunset and use all the filters and tell everybody I didn't use filters. Instead, I can look at it and say, God, thank you for that sunset and thank you for changing my life. See, God wants us to compare to himself. Why? Because when we do... We've got nothing on him, and then he reaches out his hand graciously, and he brings us value and worth and satisfaction. This man left justified. Why? Because he humbled himself in seeing who he was, that there was no comparison trap that he could live by because he was undeserving, and in his undeserving state, God made him worthy. God gave him purpose. Could it be this morning that we would say, God, I don't want to see myself through the eyes of other people. I don't want to define my life through the eyes of other people. God, I want to see myself through your eyes. Now I'm reminded, as I read this story, I'm reminded of uh, years ago hearing a story from a man who 
his job decades ago uh, when factories had factory whistles is his job was to set the time of the factory whistle. So every day he would walk by a store that had a, a, a store that had watches and these big clocks in there, and he would stop there and he would look at this really beautiful old clock that they had hanging in the window, and he would go to the factory and he would set the time based upon this clock. And so every day on his way to work, he would set the factory whistle based upon the clock in the window of the store. One day as he was coming home from work, the whistle had blown exactly on time. He came back to the store, and he went, decided to go in, he decided to talk to the manager and say, hey, I want you to know I'm setting, setting the whistle clock, the whistle, uh, the whistle to go off based upon your clocks. He goes in, and he meets the manager, and uh, he says, hey, I just wanted to share with you, I'm, I'm one of the managers over at the, at the factory, and every day when I walk by here, I actually set the factory whistle to your clock that's in your window. And the man looks at him and says, sir, you do? He says, what you don't know is I set this clock to the factory whistle. <laughs> Can I tell you? I believe this is exactly what Jesus is getting at. If we measure our lives by the lives of others, we will always have a poor standard. You know why? Because you'll be measuring yourself to death. You will be in a comparison trap that you would never live up to You'll always find somebody better and you'll always find somebody worse. You will slowly become a Pharisee. You will look at your spiritual life and think, well, God has to be happy with me. I'm not as bad as them. God must be okay because I'm not like that, those people. Well, all right, at least I attend a good church. Or I, right, at least I read the Bible. At least I'm in a small group. Right? We begin to compare and we think, well, we're better than everybody else. But it'll always be a, uh, 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 it will always be a poor center. Why? Because all it is is comparing yourself to yourself. But when we compare our lives to the life of Jesus Christ, when we compare to who Christ is, that's exactly what this tax collector does. God, be merciful to me. I've got nothing to offer. Satisfy me. I'm just a sinner. You know what happens? You realize you fall short. And when we fall short, we have God who reaches out his hand to pull us up where he is. If you feel inadequate, what does he do? He provides what lack. If you feel any pride, he, he brings us back down and says, no, 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 remember, it's not of your doing. It's my gift that saved you. Here's the picture. This is the picture we get. When our eyes are focused on our own salvation, when our eyes are focused on the work of God, when our eyes are focused on Christ, guess what happens? If my eyes are focused on Christ, I can't focus them on comparing to everybody else. The question is, where are my eyes set? Am I looking to other people for my value and worth, or am I saying, God, my eyes are on you? I know I, I fall way short of you, but God, my eyes are on you, and so I'm asking you, God, have mercy. Be my satisfaction. Be my worth and value. I don't want to compare to the highlight reels of other people on social media. I want to compare my life to you, and I realize I fall short, but God, make me what you're going to make me. And you know what he promises? He who began a good work is faithful to complete it. You know what he promises? Is that, is that he who started that work in your life will conform you to the image of his son in glory. He's conforming us to his image. Let me ask you, are you caught in the comparison trap? If you are, you will become a Pharisee. Accidentally, but you will become a Pharisee. Or are you living your life saying, God, I'm not worthy anyway? But God, you make me worthy to your cause. My eyes are on you. Therefore, I can't look down at anybody else. Why? Because I'm looking up. I can't look down at anybody else. Why? Because my eyes are on who you are and what you've done for me. Would you stand as we pray?
as you stand, every one of us here has a measuring rod. Every one of us, one of us is measuring to something. What are you measuring to? Are you measuring yourself to a God so big that only He can define you? Or are you measuring yourself to your height, whatever that means, possessions, finances, work? Are you measuring, and there's always going to be people less and, and always people more, superior and lesser people, the land of Ur, and you will live in the trap. If you're here and you don't know Christ, can I just for a moment implore you? You're here and you're comparing your life and you say, well, I'm not that, that, I'm not that bad. Like, I'm not a murderer. I don't, I'm not cheating on my spouse. Like, I'm, I'm living a good life. And maybe you are. Praise, praise God for that. It's in His grace. But those good things are not enough, right? Because the good things are like filthy rags, the Bible says. It, 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 before a holy God, the good things we do are still selfishly motivated. Why do I do those good things? So I can feel better about myself. Today, God wants you to see. He wants your eyes to be wide open. He wants you to see that you can't measure up to him. And when in not measuring up, then you see the gift that he is, that he came to this earth and he died on a cross and he rose again. And you can leave here, not with a hope so, maybe so, think so that you get to heaven, but you can know absolutely for certain that you have eternal life with Jesus Christ. And we'd love to share that with you here online. Right now, you can just go to a chat room. We have people ready to pray with you. For many of us, we know Christ, but we're living a comparison game. You know, can I tell you, in this COVID season, I have seen us compare, well, this person mask, or this person not mask, or this person's opinion, and that person's opinion, and we get to the election cycle, and it's all about this person, that person. I wonder if we need a great dose of who we are before God. I wonder if we need a dose of reality and saying, God, I'm unworthy. A dose of beating our chest, saying, God, be merciful. Be my satisfaction. Be the goodness of my life. All these other things pale in comparison to who you are. You be my definition. You be my value. You be my worth. You know what happens no matter what happens on the earth when it goes wrong? I'm set. When it goes well, I'm not prideful because I'm set. I know who I am. May that be our hearts here this morning. God, I want to thank you for your word. I thank you for this reminder. God, I confess to you that we all get caught in this trap of comparison. We all look at each other and like the Pharisee, never intentionally, but accidentally we stand and we say, God, uh, at least I'm not like that person. At least I'm not a, 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 an extortioner. At least I'm not unjust. At least I'm not an adulterer. At least I'm not like those people. I'm not like a tax collector. And God, we begin to compare. And there's always people that are better and always people that are lesser. But God, like the tax collector who has nothing to offer, when we stand before you and we compare to you, God, we beat our chest and we say, God, you have to be our satisfaction. Without you, we would never make it. Without you, we have no life. And God, when we compare to you, when our eyes are set on our salvation, God, we can't look down at anybody else. When our eyes are looking up on you, we can't live by comparison. So God, I pray that you would change our language. I pray that you would change our hearts. I pray that you would change our focuses. I pray that you would be the lifter of our heads. For some, Lord, they feel inadequate. And may you be the one to lift them today. God, may they not compare to the superiority of others, but may they compare to you and see we're all equal at the foot of the cross. Lord, at the foot of the cross, self-confidence and self-reliance and self-comparison is out. God, in your blood, we're, we're all the same. We all are in need of you. So God, rid us of comparison. And may we have eyes fully on you, Jesus Christ, because you define who we are. You make us free for you. In your name, Jesus Christ, our Savior, our King. Amen.